On this episode of Common Mystics, we conclude our discussion of the fascinating story of the Doan family outlaws. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story continues out of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Jennifer, I am so turned around with this story. So let's finish it because my little minds cannot take it anymore. I don't know if I'm a patriot, a Tory. I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> That's fair. I think at first, when you were researching and trying to make sense of our hits, and you landed on the legend of the Dones gang, it was almost as if you were seduced by these brothers in spirit, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I like to think we had something special, but, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> the legends are so intriguing, and the stories about these chivalrous, romantic, handsome characters, right? I'll say it once and I'll say it again. Errol Flynn. Yes. For real. Right. And Robin Hood, the character, it all is wrapped up in these fascinating legends that people still believe in today. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love about our last interview with Mark and Katrina was how they talked about growing up in Bucks County and their early interactions with the legends, like in real ways. The fact that Mark was seeing holes being dug up all over around his his home because people were looking for that Doan's stash, the stash of booty that the Doan's had stolen. You had to say booty because now my <laughs> thought process went completely out the window. But my point is, is that I think having grown up with that kind of legend and having people actually go out and hunt for evidence of those legends would be so much for my imagination. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It would just feed my imagination, take me away to a different time and place. So what what a cool place to grow up and live. Absolutely. And so we talked to Katrina and Mark, and that was awesome. So if you haven't listened to that, listeners, go back and listen to episode 67, where we interview Mark McNutt, the producer, who is producing two different series on the Dones Outlaws, as well as Katrina Weedman, TV personality and star of Portals to Hell, who grew up, both of them grew up in Bucks County. So fascinating conversation. After that conversation, we still had questions. Yes. Yes. Do you want to summarize what our questions were and set us up for the next interview? Well, in a nutshell, I think that we were still like we were sold on the legend, right? We were mm-hmm. seduced and sold on the legend. And love we love them. Love, love the handsome love, Jones love. boys. <laughs> and all their you jumping. Can, <laughs> you can tie me up and take me away anytime. Um, but we really wanted to figure out A, who they were, does that live up to the legends? What was their motivations, right? Yes. And were they good? Were they bad? What You know what I mean? Yes. What was the intention behind those behaviors? And then lastly, where had these legends come from? 
in what time frame was it? Were they legends in their own time? Was it something that was had come up later for a certain reason? Just you know what I mean? Because sometimes like we found out with your beef with Betsy Ross that her legend didn't get created until 100 years after the fact. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just one of many reasons why Jennifer hates Betsy Ross. <laughs> So we have an interview with Annie Halliday of the Mercer Museum. She sheds more light on the history and the facts surrounding the Dones family and the Dones outlaw gang. Before we get into it, I just want to remind you that Annie Halliday is a historian. She is speaking to what evidence we have to support not only the stories, but the people themselves, right? So keep that in mind while she's talking and you're listening to the interview. All right. Enjoy and we'll catch you on the other side. We are so delighted to have Annie Halliday join us. Annie is Director of Library and Archives at the Mercer Museum of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Annie is currently working on a lecture series on the Doan family and with the help of her colleague, Clint Flack, an exhibit specialist, is developing an exhibit on the Doans at the Mercer Museum, which should be finished in 2024. Welcome, Annie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. And um, like I said, in the interest of time, we're going to jump right in. So my first question is, why would a colonial family of Quakers turn outlaw and fight against the Patriot cause during and before the revolution? That's a great question. So the Doan family, part of the mythology of the family is that they were a Quaker pacifist family that were sort of galvanized into action and, you know, robbing tax collectors and the treasury and things like that. In fact, they had broken with Quakerism in the 1720s. The outlaws were not participating Quakers. They had been read out of the meeting minutes for various reasons. So by the 1770s, as these different acts are being enacted, such as the Test Act, which required white males above the age, I believe the age of 18, to give their oath of allegiance to the blossoming government of the United States, um, and also drill with the militia. Drilling just means essentially learning how to move through military formations and shoot a gun and things like that, they were fined if they did not participate in those those two those two things. If they did not drill or if they did not pledge their oath, they were fined. They also had some of their freedoms restricted, such as they couldn't hold property, they couldn't vote, they couldn't be elected for public office, they couldn't cross state lines. So you can imagine having money taken from you without your consent and also having your freedoms limited like that would not engender good feelings towards this new government. So, you know, they were radicalized essentially by these actions, by being fined, by having all of these sort of societal and economic pressures enacted on them. And they push back against the rebellion. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think I would too. Jen, (laughs) what's your next question? I love your answer. And I think it leads me to my next question because we're trying to understand the character of these people. And you say they became radicalized. It almost sounds like a passive way to put that. And Mm. I guess what what we're wondering is, were these well-meaning people who just happened to be on the other side of the cause for independence, 
Or were they opportunists who Mm. took advantage of the transition stage of war and the turmoil to pillage and and rob and use crime to profit themselves? So what's the story? Are they one or are they other or is it both or do we know? That's a great question. And, you know, it's it's tricky to answer that as someone who cares very deeply about having the proofs to back up any claims. And there's no Doan letter. There's no Doan diary. There's nothing that sort of lets us into their emotional world. So we have to everything that we sort of suppose or project on them is based on newspapers. It's based on government records. It's based on petitions written by Bucks County citizens, either opposing or in favor of them being hung or punished in some way. So it, it's tricky to, to know what they were after, what their end game was. And to be safe, I would say it's a little bit of column A and column B. I certainly think they would have been happy to be left alone. Their property was seized and their family family farm is taken from them. I imagine if some of these things didn't take place, if they were really allowed to just sort of quietly live on their family farm and go about their jobs, then they probably would have just watched from the sidelines. But I think they were proud young men. They started to get into the, into this business in their um, late teens, early 20s. So you imagine, you know, you sort of think of, of a 20-year-old man today <laughs> and all of the you know, emotions and chemicals sort of going through them. It, it's not too difficult to then see them going like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll ride a horse through the, the dark countryside and, you know, get into some adventures with my brothers and my cousins and my friends and, and things like that. So, and also they were definitely being led by older men. There's the Tomlinson family who were much older than them. They were in their fifties at the time of the revolution and they were a more well-to-do family, a more more educated family that was also in Bucks County, who certainly seemed to be more of the mastermind behind their schemes. It was a Tomlinson family member's idea to rob tax collectors, to rob the treasury. So we always sort of say that the Dones were the boots on the ground. They were the young, active uh, men. They were known for being good horse riders. They were known for being very athletic. You know, they were the ones that then actually went out and did the actual robbing and thieving. So there is evidence that there was actual robbing and thieving is what I'm hearing. But also you mentioned the Tomlin family. Is that right? The Tomlinson? That is Moses's wife's family because Moses married Rachel. Yes, Moses did marry Rachel Tomlinson. It's not exactly clear what the exact, because of course everyone has the same name. So it's sometimes very tricky to know exactly who is who in the family tree. But yes, she did marry a Tomlinson and um, John Tomlinson is very involved in the gang. uh, And he is one of the first members of the gang to be hung. John Tomlinson is hung October 17th, 1782 for burglary in Newtown. That's crazy. This is the first time our listeners would be even hearing that name. When you're talking about the Tomlinsons being more of the masterminds and the Dones boys, kind of the the guys on the Mm -hmm. ground, it sounds like you're describing a larger crime syndicate and not just a little group of bandits. Yes. And that's a great point. Um, Another sort of common misconception is that, you know, you hear the Doan gang and a lot of people sort of assume it's just members of the Doan family. But in fact, they were part of a larger network of loyalists 
loyalist spies, they were part of a 30-person gang. I mean, there were multiple gang members who participated in the treasury robbery, who participated in the stealing of horses, who participated in the robbing of tax collectors that did not have the last name Doan. So how did the legends, as we have them today, get crafted? When did they start? Were they legends in their own time? So these legends did not really exist in their own time. I mean, there's this really fascinating broadside um, that is distributed in Philadelphia after Abraham and Levi are hung in 1788 that records a little bit of their biography. And it talks again about them being remarkable horsemen and very active and they can jump very high and there's stories of them in prison, you know, leaping over things with their irons still on and, you know, sort of all these like Superman heroic feats that they, you know, they allegedly did. But the stories of them that circulate more commonly now really did not get started until the 1840s or 1850s. There was a lot of serialized newspaper stories documenting the Doan story and uh, what took place during the revolution, but it's all based on myth. It was to sell newspapers. It was to, you know, make money purely from a profit standpoint. This, these were not written by, you know, what we would call today historians. Well, I just, I have a question. Why wasn't it called the Tomlinson Day? Hmm. Like, why was it called the Dones? Like what would, there must've been something about the young Dones boys that captured the imagination. What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think why it's the Doan gang is that they are in it longer than the Tomlinsons. And I think also the Tomlinsons were successful at kind of keeping their name out of it because, you know, they some of them stay in the area. They stay in Bucks County. And I would imagine that their neighbors probably didn't feel super awesome about the fact that these people who are conducting robberies on their own neighbors are still in the still thriving in the area, you know, running businesses and things like that. You kind of touched base on one of my questions coming up as to um, the Treaty of Paris. When mm. the United States officially ended its the Revolutionary War with England, they signed the Treaty of Paris saying, among some of the other conditions of the treaties, that the, the loyalists or the Tories on the ground in the colonies were going to be treated fairly. But mm-hmm. yet we see that the Dones, specifically after um, 1782, when the treaty was signed, they were sought after imprisoned, executed, killed. Can you speak to that? Why they weren't privy to that fairness? I believe part of that can be linked to the fact that they were tainted of outlawry, um, which is a medieval tort that existed far before the beginning of the American Revolution um, that literally meant you were outside of the law. You know, now when we think about outlaws, we sort of think of like the Wild West and cowboys and things like that. But this actually began during the American Revolution, and it was a way to sort of find them guilty without a trial. As soon as you're tainted of outlawry, you forgo your right to a trial. And then in 1788, when Abraham and Levi are captured, they're only imprisoned for a couple of months before they are hung. That was done by Benjamin Franklin. Also, that's like another little known fact. Benjamin Franklin was the president of the Supreme Executive Council at this point. Um, so he very much signs off on their, their death warrant to, to actually have the execution take place. And it's not exactly clear why Benjamin Franklin felt so strongly about hanging them. My personal opinion, just sort of based on my observations on the research that we've done is I think he was just sort of ready to be done with the Doan gang. 
think it was just really complicated. It was requiring a ton of time. It was prolonged hunt to find them. They're escaping from prison multiple times. You know, they've been successful for so long. I'm sure that it was a bit of a gesture to be like, this is what happens to you when you don't follow the rules. Just real quick, Jen, and then we can go on the next question. But they were executed next to the building where the Continental Conduct was in Independence Square. So they were imprisoned in Philadelphia at the Walnut Street Prison, which is, does not exist anymore. And they were hung in what was known as like the commons. And it's actually where today's Philadelphia City Hall is. William Penn's on top of it. Precisely. William Penn's on top of it. So that that is where they were hung. And then they were brought from Philadelphia back to Bucks County. Their bodies were. Annie, I know that you know what we do, right? Part of our podcast is we open ourselves up and we talk to spirit. And we really believe that this family is reaching out to us. In your opinion, why do you think this family is is reaching out from the historical perspective. Is there any misunderstanding or is there anything that you think this family wants the world to know? I think the story is dying to be told. Um, you know, as we sort of touched on, there's a lot of myth and legend and lore circulating right now that I think misconstrues their motivations. I don't think it captures them very well. They don't always look very good. I mean, there's a lot of mythological stories of them murdering people, raping women, you know, doing very, very violent acts that are not true. They're not based on any contemporary record. There's no historical record of any of these crimes taking place. And again, there's a lot of misunderstanding about why they went and started to commit these robberies. And when you break down their motivations, it's really easy to see And if you put yourself in their shoes, you're like, yeah, I would also react very poorly to having my property taken from me and someone charging me money and, you know, so on and so forth. So the accurate story that we are very focused on here at the Mercer Museum needs to get out there. People are really interested in it. They're hungry for it. You know, when we go do these lectures, we get approached by a lot of people who are sort of like, just rapid fire asking us questions. Is this true? Is this true? And we're like, no, yes, no, yes. (laughs) They really want to know what actually happened. Can you tell us a little bit about the lecture series that you and Clint are working on and the upcoming exhibit that we are so excited to go back to Bucks County and see? Back in 2021, Clint and I started to collaborate on a multi-part Doan lecture series, which its sort of umbrella title is The Royal Refugees, um, which is something they called themselves. So that multi-part series sort of starts at the very, very beginning and follows them up until about 1844, when the last two remaining brothers die in Canada. We have sort of a lot of visual imagery to sort of accompany the story. And we've been really lucky that local libraries and historical societies have invited us to come and present this lecture series as part of their programming offerings. We'll be at Washington Crossing State Park May 7th, premiering a new lecture that we're creating called The Dones and the Revolution. So that's been really exciting. And then all of this research that we've been doing because it's been happening in-house at the Mercer Museum Research Library is now being parlayed into a really exciting exhibit. Um, It opens May 2024 and runs through 2026. So it'll be up for America 250, you know, the big celebration of the United States that's happening in 2026. It's going to be very immersive, a lot of amazing imagery created by local Bucks County artists. So it's going to be a lot of visualization of these historical events that are not really recorded anywhere else. Very exciting. Wow. Is there anything we missed that you want to clear up before you go? Final Final thoughts. thoughts. 
Oh, actually, another big myth around the Doan treasure, the Doan gold. There's been a lot of myth that all of the money that they stole from tax collectors and from the treasury was buried in a cave in Bucks County, and then the location was lost and no one's been able to find it. So it is our belief that is not accurate. There's never been a discovery of any treasure or gold anywhere. There's no contemporary record of them living or hiding in caves. Any stories around them being in caves happened after their death. Again, they appear in some newspaper serials in the 1800s or just more local sort of oral tradition. Any money that they took pretty much went right back into their activities. Because obviously when you're an outlaw, you can't have a job anymore. And they're married and they have children and they have families to support. Really what you'll see is lots of petitions from the Tomlinsons and the Dones asking for land or money because they've spent it all doing these loyalist activities. So any money they had, they spent. They, you know, they were not in the position where they could squirrel any of it away um, and hide any of it. They, every cent they really needed. Um, And also it's a 30 person gang. So money, the amount goes down as you're distributing shares across, you know, everyone else who's participating in this robbery. So when you sort of look at all those details next to each other, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. It it doesn't really seem as possible that they would be sort of a treasure hoard that they, you know, hid somewhere. You are so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Happy to do it. Yeah. Hope, hope we see you around here. Let me know if you ever come out to visit. Happy to show you around the museum. You're wonderful. All right. Thank you, Annie. Bye-bye. And we're back. So after hearing Annie, Jen, yeah, what are your conclusions? Did she clear up anything for you? Yes and no. <laughs> you know what you I think me. is so, so interesting about this story is that both sides are true. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like both sides are true, that they were good and they were bad. Their motivations were noble and their motivations were selfish and self-serving. Well, that just seems like they were human, right? <laughs> like we're all not one thing. That's a I really can tell good you, point. I'm not all good. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Caught me. <laughs> Again, and I said this when we talked with Mark and Katrina, too, we learn about how our country was born, that the United States broke away because we were wronged. And Mm -hmm. you come away with the understanding that we were all in it together. The colonies Mm -hmm. were in it together. And they broke away with the help of France, of course, and started a new nation that was better for us. That That's kind of the, mm. the big overarching narrative. Right. It feels like we learned about the Revolutionary War through the prism of one pissed off Bostonian, someone who was living in the cities on the coast, all angry, and they were fired up because of the king, right? But that wasn't the case. That certainly seems to be the overall perspective that is presented in the textbooks and in the generally accepted history. But if you put yourself there, if you can imagine your own self right now placed in a place in time where what's happening around you really has nothing to do with you, that you're completely fine in rural Pennsylvania doing your own thing. You don't have a beef with British rule. It really has no bearing on your day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, just that idea that there were colonists who disagreed with the break from England. Not only disagreed, but I would say... 
They were minding their own business. And then here comes these rebel rousers, right? And yeah. they're like, we're going to take your lands and we're going to, and you're going to give us your sons to fight for this cause. And you're like, whoa, dude. Yeah. I, like, exactly. calm down. Exactly. I'm fine here. But nevertheless, their lands were seized. Their money was taken for taxes to support the war. The same injustices that the patriots were citing to get themselves all riled up to right. fight against England. Right. And so. I think that's why it really blows your mind when you compare that story, the story of the Doan's family, the the real people. I know. That's why I'm I'm chasing my tail over here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, literally, because I, I am a Doan fan. I want them to succeed. I don't want their lands taken. Right. I want them to be able to live the way they want to live. Right. And you can see the hypocrisy of the patriots. You can Ugh. see it, right? And so that yeah. that makes you start to question your own sense of patriotism and what you believe to be true about the founding events that birthed your country. And that, like, it shakes you up a little bit. It's it's so true. I think that that, in a nutshell, is really important and why this story of the Doan family is really important. That's number one. But number two... I'm also blown away by who the Dones were, like real yes. people. Like when Annie was talking about them being a part of a larger syndicate, yes. that is insane. Yeah, and Mark alluded to that too. And she crystallized it for me when she mm. explained the Tomlinsons and how mm -hmm. the Tomlinsons were really the ones in power and the Dones were the guys on the street. Mm-hmm. They were the face. They were the face of of the crimes. They were actually right. the committing the crimes. And in that way, it kind of seemed, in addition to the fact that the Tomlinsons were older and more connected and the Dones were young, hot-headed kids. I hear that. It makes the Dones kind of seem a little bit victimized, doesn't it? Right. Absolutely. It makes me look at the Dones completely different. Right. Because before, they were the ones that had a plan and they were executing the plan. Now, it just seems like they were waiting for a note. It's telling them yeah. what to do, where to go, and what to get. It seems a lot more like they were taken advantage of by people who were able to hide and shroud their criminal activities behind the actions of the Dones. That's right. That makes me like them a little bit more. But also they did terrible things. We all do terrible things. There's no evidence that they had ever killed anyone. They were a part of robbing the different treasuries and tax collectors. But again, that can be part of the war crimes. And a lot of the crimes that continued after the war could have been done by other people. And they just cooked them onto the Dones just because the Dones were so widely known and accepted as the bandits. Isn't it easier just to lump it all together. Exactly right. Let's go over our hits. Well, you were you were talking about the countryside calling to you, the countryside specifically in, in Pennsylvania and the churches sticking out to you. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it was alluding to the community surrounding Philadelphia and specifically the Quakers because the churches were very prominent in my mind's eye. Okay. Jen? Yeah. Well, I told you in the car, I was seeing that soldier who was drinking coffee out of a nasty tin. He was hungry. He mm -hmm. was cold. And I was getting the feeling that we, you and I, Jill, did not know how good we had it as we're sipping our Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And I knew that he was a revolutionary war soldier. And he did not have caramel macchiato. He did not have a caramel <laughs> macchiato. 
So you tell me, you did the research on the story. What do you think that's a reference to? I think it was a reference to, one, how we don't know how good we have it as a country, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Because of all the labor pains and bringing about America, I think that that's a great metaphor. Here we are like, oh, I can't find a Starbucks. Oh, here it is. And this guy is like sitting in the cold, just looking at us like you assholes, like first world problems. Right. And it's arguable that we have what we have because of him. That just cut me deep. You were seeing a man in the night wearing black on horseback with a sense of urgency, feeling like a thief running through the night with his cape flapping. Thoughts on that image? I do have. I have a couple thoughts on that. Talk to me. When I said in the last episode that he was like a reversed Paul Paul Revere. Revere, what I meant by that is that Paul Revere was running with a sense of urgency, screaming and letting everyone know someone's coming, someone's coming. This guy was quiet. Well, Paul Revere was also a patriot. He Ooh, that's a good Paul point. Revere was warning the patriots. He was for the American cause and he was working to, to announce that the British were coming. This guy was the exact opposite. Yes. He was quiet. He didn't want to be known. He didn't want anyone to know that he was riding horse back at night. He was carrying secrets. So it was the complete opposite of that feeling of Paul Revere. And I got it in that moment. Yeah. Do you also feel like he was working against the Patriots, this man? At the time, I didn't. But I did feel like there was some theft involved. The thief in the night. That was in my head. Can I just tell you what I think? Uh, I'm going to add an additional layer on top of this. Oh, my goodness. Tell me. Knowing what I know now about the legends, particularly the one legend of Moses on horseback to beat George Washington to New Jersey, to Trenton, to warn General Rawl that the American, the Patriot Army was going to attack. That's what I thought of. I feel like that could have been the very image of Moses on horseback in the night. Wow. I'll I'll take it. Ah, oh, Jennifer. Yeah. The tavern. The tavern. I was picking oh up on the tavern. And you know what? So many things. I was honestly thinking, Jennifer, you're just thinking about a tavern because we had a bunch of stories with taverns. Get the tavern out of your head. But it, it turned out that a tavern was really pivotal in this story. For so many different reasons. Talk to me. Uh, well, one, they would caucus at a tavern. Ah. They would get together and they would have conversations, plan what they were going to do. I wish I could do my work at a tavern. Moses was at a tavern when he was shot and killed Mm. and they brought his little body to a tavern so they could have a party around him to celebrate he was murdered. And when I say murdered, like he was already on the ground complying and then some guy bust in and shot him anyway. So he didn't have to die. And the fact that they were celebrating that is really gross to me. They were like literally having drinks over his dead body. Like when someone says over my dead body, they're like, okay, very disrespectful. You were also, yeah, you were picking up on the poor during the revolutionary time and the haves and the have-nots. I still find that compelling to contemplate, to be honest, because like we said, when we think of the Revolutionary War, we're not thinking of the general people. We're thinking of Thomas Jefferson. We're thinking of Ben Franklin Franklin, Mm -hmm. and whoever the hell John Hancock is. You know what I mean? We're not thinking of like who was living during the time. So to think of the actual people and how people were suffering during the time of the revolution is still something that stays with me. I agree with you. The thing is, and I think the power of history is to actually dig a little deeper and put yourself in that position and feel some of the emotions that some of the other people were feeling whose story isn't written anywhere. And that's what I, where I think the power is. 
I agree with you 100%. I also want to say that the reason why it feels like I am, I personally am dissing on the founding fathers is because they are encapsulated in the idea of America. And it almost seems sacrilegious to say that they were flawed in any way, Mm. to be honest. So I, I hear you getting angry about Ben Franklin and we will hold on to that anger. We are going (laughs) to, we will talk about that in a detours. So listeners, if you want to hear Jill hate, on Ben Franklin and it's personal. Specifically. It's, it is personal. You, It is personal. You can check out our Patreon page and sign up for our detours at Tier 2. But I do have to say one thing. When we were in Philadelphia and we were walking around, the, the carpenter situation that kept coming up and coming up, apparently the Doan family is known for being like renowned carpenters. Are you serious? Swear to God. Melissa, one of the Doan's descendants, sent me a message on Facebook. She listened to episode oh. 16. Seven. Oh, what an honor. I know. She's so cute. She sent me all these conversations regarding how the Dones were known as carpenters and some of the works that still survive today from the Doan family. Now, this is such a great example of how spirit works because you and I were like researching Samuel Carpenter. Like, wow, this carpenter family is really important. And it was a rabbit hole just to find out, oh, that's what you meant, spirit. <laughs> right? <laughs> so true. You could have been a little clearer, but whatever. Yeah. Wow. That's That's incredible. That was my one hit that I was like, how is this not, how is this not working out? Okay. So yeah, so that was crazy. Then you know what else is crazy, Jennifer? Tell me. The old city hall. Yes. In Philadelphia. The building that we were drawn to. Yes. And we were playing outside and taking pictures of ourselves. Yes. It was said that Abraham and Levi were hung at old city hall. Us being pulled in that direction was pulling us to the fact that Abraham and Levi were both hanged at a city hall. At a city hall. And can you explain what is so significant about the hanging of Abraham and Levi? They were the only people in the history of the United States to be hung for outlawry. And that was a catch-all term to prevent these people to have a real voice in a trial. They had friends and families and Quakers writing notes to the Supreme Council to say, like, these boys aren't bad. Give them a break. You let Joseph Jr. and Aaron, you know, exile from the country. You don't have to kill these guys. And even patriots who took up the patriot cause were looking to the council to be lenient and to say, like, hey, you know, you don't have to kill them. But yet... Ben Franklin signed the death warrant of Abraham and Levi. So he was using British, the British system and British terminology to get rid of these guys quick without giving them a fair trial. Exactly. Okay, so it is quite possible that Moses and Levi are voiceless because this is really shitty. (laughs) I feel the anger towards Ben Franklin coming back again, again. Meet us at Detours After. We have a lot to say. I want to just tell you when I had a conversation with Jay, who does not want to be publicized or put on the podcast because he wants his amenity and he doesn't want people to look at him funny, but he is the dowser. (laughs) All right, so he's the guy with the dousing rods. Yes. And he's a mystic because he uses his dousing rods to find stuff in the ground. He wouldn't call himself Okay, but that. we're mystics and that's 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 what we see. <laughs> we're we are knighting him mysticized. Yes. 
Okay. When I had the conversation with him, he was saying we, we, the spirits, there was more than one. Talking through him. Talking th- talking Ooh. through him. And he was saying that they were sad and the sense of not having honor or they weren't honored in yeah. a way or their for their honor okay. that, you know, that kind yeah. of feeling. That's why they were yeah. sad. So I'm going to let you go first. What do you think that means? Who's our voiceless? Because I think that ties into our voiceless. Well, I think Moses was shot without honor. His body wasn't treated with honor and he didn't have a proper burial. Also, Abraham and Levi were treated without honor the way that they were Mm -hmm. hanged. They didn't get a fair trial, correct? But also all of these Dones early on, their motives probably were honorable when they were trying to stand up to the unfairness towards them by the patriots. Mm -hmm. And I think they would have seen themselves as honorable. What do you think? I 100% agree with you. I think that if you are living third generation, third or fourth generation in an area that is now war torn and the people that you grow had grown up with in this the only place you've ever known is taking lands from you and taking your money i think it's brave that you would take up arms and do what you can to resist that kind of oppression because the, the patriots were oppressing these people very well put so who's our voiceless i think all of them are i think just the doan family moses joseph junior aaron malin Levi and Abraham, their cousin. All right. Also, Jennifer, I want to address the legend. For some reason, this is really important to me to clear up the legend that the boys and their parents were on the outs when they started becoming outlaws. The legend has it that the boys in the family separated from their parents, Joseph Sr. and Hester, who are assumed to have been these devout Quaker people and whose boys spun off to start this life of crime. Then there's a schism between Moses and Joseph Sr., his father, that is part of this rich legend of the Dones. Right. I want to be very clear because I feel like this whole time, this piece of information has been a thorn in Joseph Sr.'s side. He wants everyone to know that there was no rift in this family. Not only did Joseph Sr. go to jail for aiding and embedding his sons, Hester's family was also part of the crime syndicate. But yes, this this is a close-knit yeah. family. They were all together in these efforts to oppose the patriots in their cause. In other words, Joseph Sr. supported his boys, yeah. even when they were, quote unquote, outlaws, even when they were resorting to criminal activities and actually went to jail for his support of his sons. Joseph Sr. always supported his family and there was no schism there. Well, I hope that we did justice to the Dones and their story. And I hope that people continually talk about them and their cause. And I think we should use them to think about who we are as Americans and how this country was created. Love it. Thank you. Or tell the people where they can find us. 
Find us on Detours because we have a bunch of shit to talk about Ben Franklin. So check out our Patreon page for that. (laughs) What else, Jill? Well, check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Mystics Pod. Please listen in wherever you're hearing your favorite podcast. But if you happen to be on Apple, please stop and leave us a positive review so other people can find us or just hit some stars. Make sure they're the five... Hit all five stars, people. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you. Good night. Bye. Bye.